Welcome to Amici, news and insights from the New York State Unified Court System. I'm John Carr. Today I'm speaking with my colleague Tony Walters, the director of the Court System's Office of Diversity and Inclusion, for the latest Diversity Dialogue interview. Tony, welcome to the program. Welcome, John. Thank you. First, what is the Office of Diversity Inclusion? Uh, and Inclusion, what, what are its goals? Well, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion um, is that office at OCA that really tries to be a clearinghouse for all manner of diversity and inclusion type topics. Um, our mission, very simply, is you know is that the Unified Court System has a long-standing commitment to equal employment opportunity, the elimination of underrepresentation of minorities and women, and to ensuring a diverse workforce that reflects the communities that it serves. As we are now finding out um, by work that is being done in the private sector and in other public sector entities, diversity contributes to the many different perspectives, approaches, talents, and aspirations that court employees bring to their work. Diversity considerations include, but are not limited to, nationality, ethnicity, race, gender identity or expression, and the many other aspects of backgrounds and identities, including age, religion, geography, family status, sexual orientation, physical and mental abilities, and other differences. Those differences are unique to us as individuals, but other differences connect us to groups of people. The strength of diversity is realized by valuing and leveraging all of those differences to contribute to the overarching mission of our court system, which is the timely and just resolution of matters before the courts. Now, why is that so important? Our basically <clears throat> tends to, again, by communicating with leadership, employees, um, to do just that. Why is that important, though, particularly in a court system? I mean, is it, you know, a court system, particularly judges, judges base decisions on facts in the law. Um, the court system is based on facts in the law. Why does diversity matter in a substantive way, or, or is it just a matter of optics, a matter of gender and fair, gender and racial and ethnic fairness and, and perception? Well, again, um, I think it's very important um, for us as a court system. Um, we, 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 unlike uh, corporations where, you know, for any type of product, you probably have some type of competition where you can pick and choose uh, what you want to utilize. Our court system in this country is, in fact, just that. Um, so if that is not something that is compromised by the perceptions of bias or prejudice or discrimination, um, the whole system, I believe, breaks down. So I, I think it's it's much more than optics. If, if you erode the confidence of those who are, in fact, supposed to be served by this court system along those lines, I, I think you have... Um, an extremely faulty, if not ineffectual, uh, platform. So sure. I think it's very important that we never, you know, stray too far afield from um, making sure that diversity and inclusion is at the very pillars of our court system. Now, I know the name of your office uh, changed fairly recently from the Office of Work Workforce Diversity, and we'll get into that in a minute, but let's discuss the origins of it. Um, give me the who, what, when, where, why. Uh, how does this how does this uh, office exist and why? Sure, sure. Um, uh, and I think we have to go back to and I don't have the exact dates, um, but uh, mid eighties. Uh, Chief Judge Saul Walker um, basically probably put his his hand on the on the pulse of 
our court system when it came to diversity in two ways. One, you know, how were employees interacting with each other along those lines? But then also, you know, how was the public being treated along those lines? What was the perception of the public uh, regarding diversity in our court system? Um, he impaneled the Franklin H. Williams Commission, which at that time I think was called the Franklin H. Williams Commission on Minorities. Um, but he impaneled them, and, um, and very quickly they identified um, Franklin Williams to head up that task force and then a long-standing commission to do a much more substantive look at diversity in the courts um, and diversity as it, as it related to the court system interacting with the public. What they saw was whole-scale, I would say, deficiencies in deficiency. You know, the number of, of minorities, women, um, people of other orientations that held leadership positions, that held any of our positions. Uh, then they, they saw there were great disparities in how people in the public were treated along those lines as well. Uh, there were just a lack of civility, a lack of fairness uh, being, being shown to litigants, court users um, throughout the system. Um, how rampant versus anything else that's going on at the time, um, I don't know. But again, I think it just really underscores the fact that we as a court system and Judge Walker realize that we cannot have that as, you know, more the perception than, than not. Um, so one of the recommendations that came out of that study was that the, the, court, the court system needed an office of diversity. Um, so I would say maybe the late 80s, uh, the office started out as the EEO or Equal Employment Opportunity Office under the auspices of the Human Resources Division. Well, let, 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 me, let, let me cut you off one second because coincidentally, and I swear it is 100% coincidental, I happen to have that report in front of you and I'd like to read a little bit of it. I think that would add some okay. context to this. So the, th the things that the commission found, that the commission that Judge Walker put together found, when they went out and did public hearings were rather startling. A witness in Albany testified that the court personnel's attitude is that an inner city person is a nobody and we felt hopeless rage as we see them snickering and whispering snide remarks. A New York Times survey of 1,147 New York City residents found that 47% of blacks and 43% of Hispanics were convinced that courts favor whites. A New York Law Journal poll that poll found that 71% of blacks believe that a white would get a lighter sentence than a black for the identical crime, a perception shared by 31% of the white respondents, and a witness in Buffalo told the, told the panel that 95% of the clerks, court officials, city, of, city marshals, law assistants, and attorneys were members of the minority community. In New York City, a former court employee insisted that minorities work at lower pay grades and lower pay ranges over all other employees. So that's what that's what we were that's what the chief judge was confronted with. I guess at the time that this uh your office was being contemplated and, and created, is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um as as, as you just so eloquently stated and, and that, that report stated, the the problems were relatively widespread. Um uh you know Right now, New York City looks a lot different than it did then as far as the court system. Um, in other parts of the state, maybe less so. But back then, you did have these whole-scale um, issues um, that, again, Judge Walker saw that this court system cannot continue to embrace or practice. Um, so, again, 
they they started an office of equal employment opportunity to address some of these issues within the court system itself. Um, I'm not sure who that first director was, but I know that when I came into the system in 1994, it was Alice Chapman at that time. Um, she was again a deputy director for EEO under Human Resources, um, and that's when I came in as an analyst. Um, and we kind of been quickly fast forward to um, the office now being, you know, an office of diversity and inclusion. And I, I think, and I'm not sure if you're ready to answer this question yet, but you know, there is, I think, a, a, kind of a huge conceptual difference between diversity and inclusion. Um, Tell me when you're ready to speak about that. Well, we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But um, so this office that was set up, um, one of the things they did is created. It, one of the things they decided is that the director of this office, you, should be a member of the court system's top executive management team. Why is it important that the person who's heading that office be part of that team? And, and I have to say, I I I, I don't know if that was um, something that was really thought of at the beginning initially mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think the fact that it was in fact it started off as a subset of human resources um and again i think that's at that time we're talking about the late 80s probably made a lot of sense um um i think now yes it absolutely again go back to the private sector you go to places where this type of work is taken seriously um yeah the leader of that office um is in constant contact with the overall leadership of the organization. Um, again, because what you really want to foster is this constant thinking, if not practice, execution of diversity and inclusion principles. When there's a position open, are we thinking about all of the people who are qualified to be you know, included in the interview process? When we are appointing um, administrative judges and supervising judges, are we thinking of everyone that is in fact in that area to be the person who will make those decision-making policy procedures? Um, so that diversity person has to be in constant contact um, letting those people know. The other part of that is now also, as I like to say, priming the pump so that you always, at the lower levels, you're getting employees of various backgrounds into the workforce so that they can ultimately progress to be decision makers as well. Mm -hmm. So it's this constant push where, you know, and, and, and you, you know, you have to get your disposal, you know, as far as outreach and creating awareness uh, to do that. But it is this constant communication and constantly having that not very far from the mindset of the people who make the decisions that are we thinking about diversity? Are we thinking about being inclusive? Um, and, and sometimes that means even, you know, to get the best and the brightest and to get the most competent is to go outside of our system. You know, we shouldn't be shuttered into thinking that, you know, only the people that work for us have, you know, the best problem-solving ideas. And I think uh, our court system has come a long way in doing just that. Now, it sounds like your job is to not present the rosy picture to the chief judge and the chief administrative judge, but give them the the true picture, correct? I, I think that's correct. Um, and, you know, and, and again, up to a point, I mean... Um, you can never, I don't think I can ever, this can never be Tony Walters' personal kind of assessment of, 
diversity and, you know, when it comes to decision making. Um, but it's to constantly let them know when there might be blind spots, when we're not, we're not thinking about certain people, um, to bring that to the fore. And, and it's also, again, also constantly giving them, when possible, um, you know, the actual the actual applicants to do that. I mean, you know, go back to our, our recent court officer recruitment campaign. Um, court officers are, you know, the face of our courts. They're some, oftentimes the first people that the public sees when, when they come into our courts. We want those people to look like the communities they serve to the, to the greatest extent possible. Um, so we, you know, my office, uh, the Office of Human Resources, um, direct uh, leadership and direction from, you know, our OCA leadership, you know, we, we, we uh, allocated resources, we allocated time, effort to do just that, to get out into communities and let them know about that position. Um, and it takes that kind of multifaceted approach so that, you know, um, my, my deputy in my office, we like, to, we like to say that, you know, we feel that we are being successful when, you know, the diversity and inclusion is, and, and its concepts are part of the DNA of this organization. And that comes through thought, communication, action, execution, initiation of, of, of you know, the platforms. Now, you, you really cannot be effective without support from the highest levels. <clears throat> are you getting the support you need? I absolutely think right now I, I am. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I mean uh, it's like anything else, uh, support, enthusiasm, you know, it, uh, some people uh, and some entities and, and, and other administrations were, were might have been less enthusiastic. But I can honestly say that uh, since I became a director back in 2010, um, uh, Chief Administrative Judge Marks, who at that time was the head of OCA, uh, made it very clear to me that uh, diversity um, and, and now inclusion was very important to him. Um, our chief judge um, now, um, same, uh, Judge Jonathan Lippman, um, I thought was extremely, and, and Judge Lippman went back to, he's one of the founding persons of the commission. Um, so he was there at the very beginning of this, and he understood the importance of diversity and inclusion uh, to do our work, uh, you know, relatively free of the bias um, and the perception of bias that, that, the, that the litigants and our court users and our court employees might have. So um, there have been many administrations that have shown their support. Um, but I, I think if you look at our court system today, it's never been more diverse um, mm -hmm. than it is right now. So would you say that since Judge Walker set this up, there's been a, a history of cooperation and interest going from Judge Walker to Judge Kay to Judge Lippman to Judge DeFiori? Yes. Good. Absolutely. Okay. But how, how have things changed in the 10 years since you've been in the office? And, and I mean that in two ways. Um, how have the objectives and needs changed and evolved? And how has the court system responded and hopefully improved as a result of the efforts of your office? Great question, John. Um, I, I think if we go back to uh, you know the beginning of my tenure, I, I think the focus really was, let's get numbers. Let's just get more minorities, get more women get more people with different orientations and backgrounds into positions. Um, and we did that largely through outreach, awareness, letting people know about the opportunities that we had. Um, I think somewhere along the line, the shift became, um, you know, numbers are great. And I think numbers still need improvement in a lot of areas. 
Um, but, and maybe this came about really through kind of like a constant hum from our affinity groups. And those are uh, our fraternal organizations that represent uh, employees of certain backgrounds. They then really, I think, shifted their dialogue to we want people of different colors, ethnicities, backgrounds in decision-making positions. And, and I really believe that started from the very top of our structure, which was really the judges, administrative judges, um, the, the, the head of OCA. And I think you saw, you know, more appointments of administrative judges, district executives, um, the people who, who ran and led OCA. So I think that's been a, a difference. And I think that's where you do see that shift and evolution to inclusion. Because now we have people of various backgrounds who are legitimately in authoritative and decision-making positions. Who's being hired? Who, you know, who is going to be uh, promoted? You know, um, so those are very important distinctions that have to be made in this type of work. I, I think, again, initially, just numbers. Let's get people in. Um, but then it was, let's, let's, get, let's get people in. Um, and promote them and get them into positions of, of, of authority. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think we've done a great job of that. Now, you, you mentioned a moment ago, as did I, that the name of the office changed recently from workforce diversity to a diversity and inclusion. What's the, Correct. What's, what's the difference? And again, I, and, and I like to use the analogy. Um, diversity, let's say, if you, if, if, uh, let's look at a party. You know, you're being invited to a party. Diversity is having everyone invited to that party. So at the party, you have Hispanics, you have African-Americans, you have uh, LGBTQ, you have, you know, white people, you have everyone there. And as I've been to many parties, at least in my youth, you'd have parties where people would stay to their various sections of the room. No one's dancing with each other. And definitely no one's dancing with people outside of their particular group. Inclusion is being asked to dance. You are now part of and part and parcel of that party. You know, you are being asked to join in the integral um, motivations and, and purposes of that party. So that's what inclusion is. It's, it's, it's actually now getting everyone involved, getting them involved in decision making, leveraging their differences to, in fact, become a better problem solving mechanism. So at the end of the day, um, any organization, any group, you're, you're being really tasked to solve a problem. You know, you, you, you have a goal in mind. Again, our court system, the timely and just resolution of matters before our courts. Um, and as we are constantly inter interfacing and interacting with people that look like everybody in our communities, it just makes, I think, sense and logic to have people that look like those people as part of your decision-making process. That's a great explanation. Thank you. I'd like to um, explore a little bit of you. What 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 is your cultural background? Um, uh, interestingly enough, I um so my parents are Caribbean. They were born on the island of Jamaica, uh, but I was actually born um, in Great Britain. Um, back in the '60s, there was a great migration uh, between the Caribbean islands that used to actually be colonies of Great Britain. Um, they would go back to Great Britain for educational. And, and, and 
uh, career opportunities. Uh, my mother, who uh, ultimately became a nurse in New York City uh, for over 35 years, uh, began her education in Great Britain, where she met my father, who was um, of a construction type of a person. Um, they met, they got married, they had myself and my two siblings, and uh, I spent the first five years of my life in Great Britain before I came to New York. Huh. Uh, what um, sort of influence were, were, were your parents? What sort of role models were they? Um, it was interesting, and, and I have a very bifurcated type of influence system in, in, in my household. My mother's side, her mother, my grandmother, was extremely, extremely... Um, she was extremely focused on her children. She had three daughters um, going through the educational system in this country and, and really taking advantage of those opportunities. So on, on my mother's side, I have my mother who was a, who's a registered nurse. Um, I have an aunt who went to Cornell and Columbia, um, became a teacher and, and, a, and a, an executive for, for IBM. And I have an, uh, an aunt who was a, a bookkeeper for a large accounting firm here in New York City for many years. So on that side, it was always education, education, education. My father's side, it was much more, although he was not formally educated, um, it was work ethic. Um, and so the influence was like, you know, you get up and you go to work every day and you give your, your employer an honest day's work. Because that's what he did for as long as I can remember. Um, so those are really the two influences that probably, you know, I would say shaped me from my, my parents. It's, it's you know, a, a, a pretty substantial work ethic, but it was also taking advantage of educational opportunities. As you did, of course, going to a very renowned university, Georgetown, in the early 80s. Those were Patrick, Patrick Ewing years, weren't they? That's one thing. He was my classmate, absolutely. Was he really? So you, you, you majored in English, and uh, my guess is this is not what you had planned as a career at the time. Or or, or yeah. maybe oh I, I know what you were thinking you is a Hall of Fame high school football player you were you were waiting for for a call <laughs> from that only football team in New York State the Buffalo Bills right <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting um you know um when I when I got to Georgetown um, you know great governmental center uh, legal center I I thought for a long time that I wanted to be an attorney and um, and uh, you know English history government kind of great feeder majors for that uh, profession. Um, I had an internship, um, I guess it was my first, second year, where I worked for the, 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 uh, the, the DC Superior Court in pretrial services. And I got, to, I got a really keen look at the court system. And, I, and it, it, it dispelled for me you know, the kind of the Perry Mason type of everybody gets a fair trial and you're constantly in, in court kind of battling, you know, for your, your, your client's rights. And I saw that it was much, much more complicated than that. You know, you know, as, as you know, you know, most cases don't go to trial in our, in our court system in this country. Um, most cases are pled out or, you know, other ways of being disposed. And I, I wasn't as keen on being, an attorney in, in, in that type of process anymore. Um, but I still always kind of had this kind of love for at least being in that environment. So that's what's kind of kept me from that internship to interning uh, on, governmentally on Capitol Hill for a couple of summers and then coming back and basically doing um, 
pre-trial work in, in the court system for um, a not-for-profit, the criminal justice agency, um, I kind of always was around the court. So it was kind of like always doing things around the court, but just not doing it as an attorney. Mm-hmm. So you're attracted to the court system, the legal system, but not so much yes. practice practice of law. Absolutely. What do you What do you like most about your job? I like those times when I get to make a difference. I like those times when I get to advocate for someone that maybe if not for my pushing, um, you know, they might not have gotten that job and, and, and then to see them uh, uh, flourish and thrive in our system, um, that gives me great satisfaction. Um, and it's given me great satisfaction to get to see the progress that we've made. When I came in 1994, you could count on maybe two hands, probably less than that. How many administrative judges, district executives, chief clerks, um, uh, the leadership of, of, of OCA, um, how many people of color um, were in those positions? You look at it now, and it, it's just amazing. We, we're talking about, I mean, it's 20, 25 years, but it's really been a, a uh, just a, a, a huge shift. Um, and, and, I, and I know that we now work under, at least I believe we work under an administration that will not take their foot off that gas. I think they see the, the benefits of that. Um, and I think now it is becoming more of that thought process that, okay, when we look at this, you know, has this, has this been a place where there has not been for a long time anybody of color? And then we quickly look to, is there anybody that's qualified? Let's give that person a look. Let's have them be interviewed. Let's hear what they have to say. That's all part of a process organizationally that, you know, really only happens when you have commitment from the top. And I think uh, right now we definitely have that type of leadership. Well, that's a great way to end. Tony, thanks for your contributions and thanks for the interview. And thanks for um, always having your foot on the gas. John, thank you. And I just want to just close with saying, I, you know, I, I am not, um, so I, I don't do this by myself. I have a, a dedicated staff. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Who, who, who absolutely assists me on a day-to-day basis with doing this work. So I want to give a shout-out mm-hmm. to Lena Wright, to Kim Stevens, and Theresa Jackson. So done. All right. John, all right. thank you so much. Okay, Tony. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Amici. you find all of our recent podcasts on the Court Systems website at www.nycourts.gov. And most are also on the iTunes podcast library. If you have a suggestion for an Amici podcast, please let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.